Please turn with me to Mark chapter 15 as we continue looking in the book of Mark. We'll have we'll go this week and then we'll have next week in the book of Mark and, and that'll be it for our time in it. And we'll can pick up back in Isaiah starting in chapter 40. So I encourage you to begin reading and re-familiarizing yourself with that book as well. I'm excited about getting back into that one. Before we do that, Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Let's ask for his help as we go into his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to you this morning, we read over and over in your word that you use things that are just barely usable in order to do your work in order to see your kingdom come so that you might be glorified in all the earth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us this morning, that you would teach us this morning from your word, that you would open up our hearts, that we might be convicted of our sin, that you would grow us closer to you, As we read these words concerning the death of your sinless son, Jesus, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to see them anew, understand them fresh, to see our sin, but also to see our savior, to see the hope of redemption that we have and that we would cling ever closer to him. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So as I read through this passage this week, there's going to be a very important part in the passage where there's a curtain and the curtain is is torn in two. And it made me think of a curtain in another work. That's a work of fiction. And it's actually, it is a work of fiction, but a more a movie that we're all uh, familiar with. And this is the movie, The Wizard of Oz. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it. But you can can still watch it. It's really good. It's really good. You should. But there's this all-powerful, right, Wizard of Oz, and everyone is afraid of the wizard, and and they're all just terrified of him because he's this big holographic image of this green-headed man. You guys have all seen it, probably. And then, but at the end of the movie, you realize that it's just some little guy behind a curtain pulling a bunch of strings, and there's no real fear, there's no real substance there at all. And then they're like, oh, they're not afraid at all. In our text today, again, we have another kind of curtain. And there is something also behind that curtain. But in our text today, the thing behind the curtain is all-powerful and does have all the glory. In the temple, there's a portion of the temple that is kind of curtained off that only the priest could go in there certain times of the year. And there was this proper fear concerning the things that were behind the curtain because behind the curtain was the very representation of the throne of God. And in the Old Testament, there are stories of of people dying for for not behaving as they should have when it came to the holy things of God. And so there was a, a deep kind of respect and fear and even dread concerning the temple. But when Jesus came and died, all of that changed. The things behind the curtain, they they lost this fear and they became accessible to everyone. 
When Jesus was crucified, he was both the sacrifice that was made and he was the priest offering the sacrifice. And in many ways, he was tearing down the old temple and the old rules and regulations and and making a new one that was for all the people of God. So as we look at this today, I want us to look at it from the vantage point of Jesus as the sacrifice, but also understanding what it meant for him to be our priest as well. And so I want to also consider the victory that he won on the cross for us as believers. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever this morning, this victory is something that you can have as well. And so as we look again, the three points, Jesus, the sacrifice, Jesus the priest, and then lastly, Jesus the victor. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark 15, starting at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his, that he, the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also a woman looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea was respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb and had him that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, last week we looked at the events leading up to the crucifixion. We looked at the crucifixion itself. Again, we didn't go into a whole lot of detail about the act itself, instead focusing on Jesus the work that He accomplished on the cross. We're going to go in that again today, but coming again to the standpoint of Jesus fulfilling the roles that would normally be set aside for the Jewish temple and the work that was done in the temple. We've talked about this before, but remember, in the Jewish temple, it was the priest that was making atonement for the sins of the people. And they would do this once a year 
during the Day of Atonement, a very important day in the Jewish calendar. But throughout the year, they would also make other offerings and sacrifices to God in accordance with all of these temple rules and regulations. If you've read through those first books of the Old Testament, you know there's a whole lot of rules and regulations concerning the temple. And so not only was the temple a solemn and fearful place, but it was a place of exacting precision. Things had to be followed exactly. Everything was done according to the Word of God, exactly the way that the Word of God laid it out. And so as we see in our text today, we're going to see the picture of the ultimate priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, making the ultimate sacrifice himself. And in so doing, the entirety of that Old Testament sacrificial system comes to life. And we see the one that it always pointed to, and that is Jesus. And so with that, let's look together at the first point, Christ, the sacrifice. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so remember, Jesus was crucified on the third hour. And so about three hours after he was crucified, you have darkness covering the land. So in the middle of the day, you have just this intense darkness that's covering the land. And it's probably unexplainable to the people that are around. They may think, well, maybe it's clouds or something like that. But we know that this is the Lord's doing. There's several other places in Scripture that also have this kind of darkness. And I think they all point back, they all point forward to this time. In the Exodus, remember in the Exodus, in the the plagues in Egypt, there was darkness over the land as one of the plagues. And all of that darkness happened right before the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn son. In Amos chapter 8, we read about darkness in the middle of the day. And this darkness had to do with a mourning that occurred for the death of one's only son. And so I have no doubt that this darkness that we read about here is a turning away of the father from the son. But not only turning away, but also a mourning that the father was experiencing. The father and the son and the spirit all loved one another perfectly. And this didn't stop that from happening. Yet we we see that here in the, the the fullness of the verse. You know, you hear me guys, you hear me quote this all the time that that he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. Jesus Christ became sin. How does God the Father look at sin? He doesn't look upon it. He hates it. And so this darkness shows us the Father's hatred for the sins. For the sins the Son has taken upon Himself. The sins of His people. But it also shows us the mourning the Father's experiencing. Just because... This event was part of the redemptive plan of God. Absolutely part of it. That doesn't take away from the difficulty of it for the Father, for the Son, and for the Holy Spirit. We saw the emotion of Jesus in the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here I think we see a glimpse of the emotion of the Father losing a son. And we know that there's a break in this relationship because Jesus cries out in verse 34. Look at verse 34. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And that the words you see there in Aramaic, but what he cried out was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus is quoting 
from the psalm that we read together this morning in our call to worship. Turn with me to Psalm 22, as we can get a different look at this directly from the psalmist. There are lots of psalms in this book of psalms that are known as messianic psalms, and this is this is one of them. And as you read through this, and as you read through Mark 15 and other cha- and other verse chapters like it in the Gospels, again you get a very vivid picture of what the psalmist here, who was David, was writing. Let's look at the first eight verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And this is what Jesus is quoting from, and, and, and hear this. This is Jesus. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Did we just see this same kind of mocking as we read through the passage last week? Don't we see this same kind of mocking as we look in our passage today? You see this in these these verses here in the psalm. It's pointing forward to a thing that would happen. Obviously, David experienced this in his life, but Jesus is the one ultimately that would experience this. Even as Jesus cries this out, the ones who are standing around him mock him. And they say, well, obviously, he's, he must be trying to cry out to Elijah here. Jesus didn't stutter. They knew what he said. They knew he wasn't crying out to Elijah. So they continued to mock him. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. Now they're not just mocking him, they're taunting him. This is the, I mean, Todd just read from Genesis 1, the one who said, let there be light and light became a thing is up there on the cross and his own creation is mocking him. Yet he remained resolute. And after taking a drink from the sponge, He cries out his last words there in verse 37. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what those last words are, but we can read them in another gospel. In John's gospel, we read that he cried out the words, it is finished. And in the Greek, this is just one word, tetelestai, and it's a word that was often used in business at the time to mark a bill or an account as paid in full. And they would sign the words to Telestai to mark that. When Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he was a complete sacrifice. He was paying a thing that was once and for all, and once he did it, it was done. There was no more need for further payment because he was the perfect sacrifice. 
It was a completion of the task that he came to accomplish. He came to save his people from their sins. And in giving up his life, he did just that once and for all. And so as we view the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, it's really easy for us probably to to kind of gloss over it and then to go back to thinking way too much of our sins again. Or to think way too little of Jesus. Or worse, maybe thinking too little of our own sins and too much of the sins of others. Either way, our sins were big enough for the very Son of God to have to make a sacrifice. Some goats and some sheep and none of that stuff would work. Our sins were so horrible that the very Son of God had to give up His own life to atone for them. But in Him doing so, those sins have been paid for. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Meaning that He became sin who knew no sin, that you and I, we, might become the righteousness of God. God put His own Son forth as a payment which can be received by you and I by faith. And so as you consider your sin, you may even be here this morning and you may be thinking, well, my sins, you don't understand. Yours may be one thing, but mine are this whole other thing. And they're too much and they're too big. And Jesus is not big enough. You don't understand. Maybe I don't, but I don't really have to because Jesus said it is finished. He did it. You can't possibly imagine the power that exists in the blood of Jesus to save sinners like you and I. And because of the blood of Jesus, we can have forgiveness. No matter how big you think your sins are, he can do it. That brings me to the next point, Christ the priest. Not only was Christ the sacrifice, but he was also the priest that offers the sacrifice. And we see this is no more apparent than in verse 38. Look with me at 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Pretty incredible. This temple, and we could spend weeks and weeks talking about the temple. The temple was a sacred place. Only the priests could go into these inner parts of the, of the temple to do business with God. And the priests only went in during special times of the year. And there was certain protocol that had to be followed every time he go in, lest God strike him dead for not worshiping him as he ought to worship him. And God was totally within his right to do that. So the office of a priest was a very solemn one. Yet now, notice what takes place. This curtain that covered the temple, that that separated the work of the priest from the outside, where you and I wouldn't be able to go in, is now being torn in two. And those things that are behind the curtain are now revealed, just like in that movie, Wizard of Oz. Yet unlike Wizard of Oz, there isn't a mere man behind the curtain pulling strings. Behind the curtain is the very throne of God. To which you and I, as believers, now have access to because of what Jesus did for us. And can you even, can we even comprehend that? 
I'm, I'm thankful you led, with a, led us with that Genesis 1. Can you comprehend there being nothing? And then all of a sudden there being a thing? And the one who did that says, Now, hey, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Do you have requests? Please come to me. Not only come to me, come boldly to the throne room of God. And how can we possibly do that? Because of Jesus. When he laid down his life for the sins of his people, he opened up the door so that his people could have direct access to the Father. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Most of the book of Hebrews is about the same idea that I'm just talking with you right now. You could just start at Hebrews probably around chapter 4 and read all the way through chapter 10 and get this really full idea of this idea of Christ as our priest, as Christ as our high priest. But I'm only going to quote like four verses rather than reading the whole thing. I encourage you, the book of Hebrews, very, very good for this understanding. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. So we can get this, this is kind of a summary sentence here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And again, I encourage you, go back to Hebrews 4 and read forward to get this full picture of this discussion that the writer of Hebrews is building up. But here you have the climax of this discussion. Not only now do we have access to the throne of God, but we still have, still with us, our great high priest interceding on our behalf. Not only can you and I go to the throne of God, but Jesus is also there right now interceding for us as well. And since we have these things, how then should you and I live? Let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let those words sink in, brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider what the Lord has given us here. We no longer have to live in fear and doubt and worry because we have a great high priest who is going before us, who has gone before us, will continue to do that even now as we sit here and listen to his word. He is right now at the right hand of God the Father interceding on our behalf. And so when we read that the curtain to the temple is torn in two, you need to read that there is no longer a reason for you to have fear or to doubt or to worry. No longer a a reason to wonder about the one that's behind the curtain pulling the strings. He has said, come to me. And because of Jesus, you can say, I know my Father in heaven loves me. And not because you've earned it, but because of what Jesus did. And that knowledge rests upon what he did. And what did he say about what he did? It's finished. He's done it. When we see the work of Christ in that way, brothers and sisters, it is absolutely liberating. It liberates us from the bondage of sin. It shows us the wonderful grace and mercy of a Savior who cares so much that we can't even imagine for us. And this is something that we receive by faith. Again, not of our own ability, 
but in the work of Jesus. And so let us call upon him. Let us worship him. He deserves all the praise, honor, and glory. And it's in him that we have this kind of victory. And that brings me to the last point, Christ Christ the victor. In the closing verses of this passage, in verse 42 and following, we have Jesus' body is, is taken down from the cross by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. We read that he was a respected member of the council, verse 43, the council here being the Sanhedrin. We've talked about them before. And he goes to Pilate and asks for the body so that he can uh, bury him. And we learn about Joseph. He was looking for the kingdom of God, is what we read about here. And we also learn in the book of John that not only was Joseph there, and Joseph wanted to see this happen, but we also read that another very important figure was also concerned about what was going on with the body of Jesus Christ and, and how he was going to be handled. And that was Nicodemus. He remembered Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so, again, just think about that for a minute. Here we have the Sanhedrin represented. We have the Pharisees represented. Two groups that verbally attacked Jesus from the time that he said, I'm going to start my ministry. They basically chased him all over, all over the region trying to discredit him. And then they actually physically attacked him that night that he was put on trial. And from that group, you have two who began looking for the kingdom of God. Because when you come face to face with Jesus, there's no middle ground. They watched him live and they watched him die. And now Joseph takes courage as he goes to Pilate about the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. This wasn't normal for Pilate to do something like this. Jesus was guilty of treason according to the Roman government. So normally crucifixion would take several days to actually work to kill the person. That was on purpose. That's why Pilate was surprised that he was dead and actually had the centurion go and check. But for some reason, Pilate granted the release of Jesus and they buried him in a tomb. And we know that that tomb would not hold him. While the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees may have thought that they had the victory. Can you imagine just this whole little sham that they put together? They thought, okay, we finally got him. It was Jesus who would win in the end. As men from their own groups would begin to question the validity of Jesus' claims and they would believe in him. It's incredible. We've seen this in our own lifetimes. Starting first and foremost, of course, with ourselves. Jesus took a sinner made them into one of his children, not by not by me and Jesus coming to a sensible agreement. Okay, Jesus, I think I can understand that now. We didn't come to a compromise. He changed my heart. He changed your heart. He takes a heart of stone and he makes it into a heart of flesh. In Christ, we, you and I, in Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Christ has victory over our sin and is able to take something broken and make it into something he can use for his own glory. And I think it's incredible here, too, to see his redemptive work when it came to the women in this story that Mark mentions in verse 40 and following. And even in the last verse of the chapter, verse 47, which is important because these are the women that are going to go check on Jesus. 
we see a redemption. Think about the, the status of women in these days and how Mark writes about them with such honor. Because in Christ, they knew that there was neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. In Christ, we are all one. The victory that we have in him breaks down those barriers, no matter what they are. Male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. Even the centurion who was at the foot of the cross, who had previously been one of those who was mocking Jesus, who was probably beating him. They pounded the, the, the crown of thorns onto him. When he sees this, what does he say? He's completely dumbstruck. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Because Jesus Christ has the victory. When you look at the death of Christ, he wasn't simply being a sacrifice or offering a sacrifice. He was claiming victory over sin. And so when he said, it is finished, it was a shout that reached all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God said to the serpent, and he will crush your head. In Christ, we have victory over sin. We have victory because of what he's done for us. We're going to see this next week. Absolutely. But we need to say it this week. Not only does he have victory over sin, but he has victory over death. He's not still in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We can't go visit him because he's right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is not dead. He has victory over death as well. The tomb of Joseph could not hold him. And he's right now with the Father. And that's the hope that we have, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so conclusion, when it comes to Jesus, we all have a decision to make. For those of us in Christ, we must cling ever closer to him. Know that he has victory over our sin. Dwelling on your sin doesn't make you more pious. It makes you more proud. Cast it off. Cling to Christ. Know that you have access to the very throne of God because of what Christ did. And if you're here and you're not in Christ, if you don't believe, see here what he did so that you might have eternal life. Call upon his name today and be saved. Find rest for your soul. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, We are guilty of these things. We are guilty of making too much of our sin or too much of others' sin or even too little of our sin, thinking we've somehow done this ourselves. So Lord, help us to see the price you paid. It was the ultimate price. The very Son of God made flesh, gave his life so that we could have redemption, so that we might be saved. Lord, help us to understand that more and more as we grow in grace and mercy with you. And Lord, again, we pray if anyone here does not know that they would hear and believe that they would call upon your name and be saved so that you might be glorified in all the earth, the Savior of your people, the Redeemer of mankind. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.